to worship at New Hope. If you would, just grab your seats, grab your Bibles. How's everybody doing? Good. I love how everybody greets and then goes and finds their own personal pew. It's one of the perks of 6 o'clock. You can spread out. You got all your space. You got all that goodness. Good to see everybody. Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn me to 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, if you don't have a Bible, um, words will not be on the screen. Um, and so if you would, grab one of these black ESV Bibles if you don't have one and follow along. You can use your phone and that's perfectly fine. However, we're going to be jumping around in First Peter. And if you're constantly having to click and change, it might, be a little, it might slow you down just a little bit. So just FYI, you have been warned that we're going to be jumping around and it might be easier just to look at a page than something else. Hey, as we jump in to tonight, I want to do a couple things by way of introduction. One is a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was having a conversation and someone mentioned just knowing what texts were coming up in our series and coming up in our study just kind of made this comment, hey, you've got some landmines ahead of you to preach. And what the purpose, what he was saying was, hey, you've got some texts that are, going to, that are culturally sensitive right now and it can just be difficult to process. We talked about that last week. Uh, that was one of those, and this week is going to be one of those. And so I say that to, to kind of say this. I want to be uh, sensitive, but I want to be clear, right? I want to do my best tonight to be clear. But be, with being clear and with limited time, I have to be concise, meaning that I'm not going to answer all questions that are going to come from this text. So if I don't answer your question or if I say something that brings up a question, then I want you to know that I would love to answer your question after service via email, text, phone call, cup of coffee, whatever uh, you would prefer. I find uh, great joy and privilege answering questions. I had someone tell me once when they came and asked me a question, like they apologized for coming and asking me a question. Like, I'm so sorry to bother you, but I got a question about the Bible. And I'm like, what makes people think that preachers are upset about that? Like, I'm happy when people come and ask me questions about the Bible. And so if that's in your mind that I don't want that, please get that out of your mind. I would love to answer questions. I would love to try to clarify something. And sometimes I may just go, I don't know the answer, but we can try to figure that out together. So uh, I want to be sensitive, but I want to be clear. I want to be concise. um, And so recognize that tonight. Second, as we think about tonight's text, um, is we must remember that we as Christians sit under the authority of Scripture. That there are plenty of places in Scripture where I read something and I'm going, ah, I don't really know about that. But I need you to know that when I find, come across something that I struggle with, and I process, and this may not be a text you struggle with, or it may be a completely different text you struggle with, we must remember that we are called to sit under the authority of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 3 The writer, referring to Moses and the Israelites in the Old Testament, referring to them, says this, talking to his present audience, but using them as an illustration, says this, Today, if you hear the voice of God, or if you hear the Spirit, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Talking about when Israelite people rebelled by not going into the promised land. He says, do not harden your hearts. And he goes on and talks about God's word, and the famous passage in Hebrews 4 about God's word being double-edged sword and all of those things. He's talking about the importance of God's word, and, and it's this idea that in the New Testament, talking about hearing God's word and listening to God's word, there are two common Greek words that are used. First is the Greek word padakua, and the second one is hupakua. Now, that sounds Greek, because it is, but, but it also is very English. So padakua is para, parallel, 
akua, kuo, acoustics, right? So think of it this way. It's parallel acoustics when we get to English language. And what that means is parallel, you are equal with what you are hearing. Or hupa kua, hupa means to be by or from or underneath. And it means to listen underneath what you're hearing. Starting to know the difference in hierarchy? When it comes to this statement, do not harden your hearts as in rebellion, but go in and listen to God's word. What he's arguing is you must listen underneath God's word, meaning it's the authority in your life because it's from God speaking to us. We must be obedient to it. We are under it. We are not equal with it. This is not a buffet line where we get to go through and decide, I want some of this, I want some of that, I'm going to leave the veggies alone, let me get that mac and cheese. We don't get to choose what we do and don't like about God's word. We listen underneath. So I say that to go... When we come to passages, and this may or may not be a passage for you, that you wrestle with, the point is, at the end of the day, we must remember that you and I are not on the same standing with God's word. We are not equal. We do not get to judge it in authoritative stance, but instead, as Christians, to follow Christ and to recognize him as our Lord, then his word is authoritative. And so with that, we've got to wrestle and process and work on applying this passage, okay? So with all that, let's read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and we'll jump in tonight. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning uh, be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold and jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Uh, Blessed be your word. We submit to your word. Would you help us understand? Would you give me clear words? Would you give me accurate words? Would you help us sit in all the beauty of this text and worship you as it points to the gospel? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your handout tonight and you flip it over, you're going to notice that it's blank. I I tried to fill in some things. This week I did not for numerous reasons. One, it was a busier week than normal. Um, Two, I just wasn't, I was out of pocket a little bit and didn't have as much time on my computer. But also three, when I did come up with what I felt needed to be clarified, I had like seven or eight points. And I realized, man, I'm just taking up all the space at this point. So I'll just leave it blank and allow you to do some filling in. But I want you to follow along and I want to be clear. Also, as I walk through this, we're going, to, we're going to go fast, but we're also going to go slow in the sense that we're going to try to take it almost word for word, okay? So when we jump into this, 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 1, likewise, we're already having to pause. Likewise. Like what? Well, if we go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, it says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter is using Jewish language all throughout this to give an illustrative point. So when he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, 
he is, not, uh, he is not referring to a specific physical group of people, like you would say, keep your conduct among the Americans honorable, or keep your conduct. He's not given a nationalistic reference. Gentiles in the Jewish culture was everybody who's not a Jew. It was everybody who's not a part of the covenant. And so bringing that into Christianity, he's basically saying, keep your conduct among the unbelievers honorable. For those that are not a part of the covenant, covenant people, Gentiles, unbelievers, keep your conduct among unbelievers honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and then glorify God. Gentiles do not glorify God. So it's this picture of Gentiles unbelievers, which was all of us before we came to know Christ, when we saw the gospel lived out in other people's lives, along with hearing the gospel, then we saw their good deeds, we then glorify God. It's this picture that we live out good deeds and good conduct so that people who don't know Christ will worship him and come to know Christ. Recognizing that, when he says likewise, he's referring back to that. He's referring back to verse 13 in addition, when it says, be subject to the Lord's sake, for every human, to every human institution. Likewise is referring back to verse 18 of chapter 2. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. We talked about how 2.12 is like the heading summary of the rest of chapter 2 and into our passage today. Chapter 2.12 is the summary, all these instances of submitting to human institutions, servants submitting to masters, and here wives submitting to husbands, are just practical application of this overall truth that we want to live in such a way that unbelievers come to know Christ. That context in mind helps us see here, going back to chapter 3, our text, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Do you see that? how that's just a specific application of chapter 2, verse 12? I want to illustrate something for a second. How many of you like Chick-fil-A? If you don't, that's okay. Um, I love Chick-fil-A. Um, one of the things that I love about Chick-fil-A, and I'm just using this illustratively, and I used to have fun when I was younger, I guess younger, I don't know. I'm really meant more immature. It doesn't really matter the age. But I used to go into Chick-fil-A, order something, and see how many times I could get the person to say what? My pleasure. I would go in and order something. I would say thank you. And they would say my pleasure. And then they would do something. Thank you for giving my change. Thank you for giving my drink. And I would see how many times I could get them to say my pleasure. You know, and that was just me being immature. But I just, I, just, I just knew I had friends who worked at Chick-fil-A. And they have to say my pleasure to thank you. Now, why am I saying that? Because why don't they just say you're welcome? Your welcome is perfectly fine, but my pleasure is communicating a motivation. See, when we look at this text, and we look at the text last week, I said that there's always a what and a why to the text. And the why gives substance to the what. When they say at Chick-fil-A, my pleasure, they're given a why. They're saying it was my joy, my pleasure, my motivation to do whatever the what was, whether it gave me the perfect chicken sandwich in the world, that's perfectly fine. And I say thank you, they're saying it's my joy to serve you, right? It's, it's, this, it's, an, it's an illustration to say my pleasure. Another illustration is to kind of say the same thing, a little more specific, it might be a little clearer, is as a pastor over the years, I have the privilege to... Um, go and make hospital visits. A lot of times, it's not always a great situation, but I'll go and make a hospital visit to someone. Now, imagine I make a hospital visit to someone, 
And on my way out, they say something like this, which always happens. They say, hey, thank you so much for coming and visiting me. Thank you for encouraging me. Thank you for praying for me. And imagine my response was, sure, no problem, it's my job. Uh, Sure, no problem, it's in my job description, it's something I have to do. I'm glad I could come and do it because I'm supposed to. All of a sudden you go, I don't feel very special anymore. Like, I don't really feel like, I don't don't really, I I really don't wish you would have come anymore. Like, you, you see that? But if I give the truth, which is the truth, and they say that, and I say it was my joy and it was my pleasure, and it was my honor to come and serve you, it was my vi- to visit you, or whatever it is. You see the difference? One, the what's the same, the visit to the hospital. But once you understand the motivation, it brings substance to the what. Likewise, when we look at this passage, wives submit to your husbands, or be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some, the what, be subject to your husbands, the why in this passage is so that even if some, do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, let's begin to pull that apart a little bit. What does it mean for them not to obey the word? What does it mean for someone not to obey the word? Is he just saying that a husband who isn't perfect? Like, when a husband doesn't do something perfectly, doesn't obey the word perfectly, this is what you are to do. I'm, yes, that would apply in that instance, but I think he's being a little bit more specific, and let me explain why. If you go to First Peter chapter 2, um, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 and 8. Where is it? There it is. Verses 6 and 8. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, he's talking about Christ is the cornerstone. If you believe in him, you will not be put to shame. So, he's talking about salvation. Verse 7. So, honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, second category, first category is those who believe, second category is those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because what? They disobey the word as they were destined to do. Peter uses clearly in chapter 2 and not obeying the word as reference to an unbeliever. So, I fully believe in chapter 3, he's saying, so that even if some, referring to husbands, even if some husbands do not obey the word, meaning if some husbands are unbelievers, that they may be one, meaning one to Christ, over here to the believing side, without a word by the conduct of their wives. So, he's saying, if you have an unbelieving husband, submit to him, so that he may be one without a word to the conduct, or excuse me, by the conduct of their wives. So hold on, Pastor, are you telling me that I'm submit to my husband, who my unbelieving husband, and so and try to just simply win him over to Christ without ever telling him about Christ? Because it says without saying a word. No, I don't believe it's necessarily grammatically that could be an example. But we already learned from chapter one that we are born again from the preaching of the word. So, you, so he's got to hear the word. It's not saying that you should become a Christian and never tell your husband about it. It's not saying you should become a Christian and never tell him about Jesus because no one can ever know, turn to Jesus if they don't hear about Jesus. So exactly what is he saying by not a word? I think what he's clearly just saying is that, we, that wives submit to unbelieving husbands with honor and respect so that they could be one to Christ not by the nagging and arguments of words and language but by pure conduct of good deeds we see in chapter 2 verse 12 this is exactly what he says also keep your 
conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter's just simply applying this truth right here to a wife with an unbelieving husband. Yes, I fully would affirm that you should tell your husband about Christ. But I would also tell you, don't nag him about Christ. In the same way, if I have a, if I, and this isn't just specifically this instance, this is a good example that can be applied in a lot of other, a lot of other situations. So if I have a neighbor, for example, that I'm trying to show Christ to in the glory of Christ, or a co-worker, here's, here's your options. You could go in every single day and let them know how they're wrong, or that you think they're wrong. You could go in every single day and go, you need to turn to Jesus. Have you turned to Jesus yet? You need to turn to Jesus. You need, and you just go in and argue with them, and it's constantly a debate with them, and arguing and arguing, and then emotions get heated when argument happens, and it gets out of the way, and then at the end of the day, they like you less because of Jesus instead of more. But instead, would you, yes, speak about Jesus, explain the goodness of the gospel, but then would you live in such a pure, humble, and honest way that they would look and see how you respond to situations in humility and they would be attracted to the Jesus that they heard you talk about, but not repulsed because you're nagging them, but instead that they see that quiet, humble spirit and you respond in an attractive way. This is, this is what he's saying. Wives, don't come to Christ then go to your unbelieving husbands and disrespect their leadership in such a way that you just go in and tell them how they're wrong. But instead, yes, would you speak the gospel to them and then submit in love in such an incredible way that it shows them the goodness of the gospel. Isn't this precisely what Christ did for us? Chapter 2, verse 22 says this, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He didn't have to do that. He submitted himself to do that. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. I want us to see that when Christ says, wives submit to your husbands, and the reason of the wives to win them to Christ He's essentially simply going, that's exactly what I did for you. I submitted myself, Philippians 2 says, Christ humbled himself, meaning he submitted himself to taking on the form of flesh. He submitted himself to the death on the cross by human hands so that it is through that gentle love and submission that he, and willing to die for us, that he could show us the greatest amount of grace to us. See, if we read this text of just the what without the why, then we just have a a situation that sounds chauvinistic, that sounds sexist, and it sounds extremely degrading and disrespectful. However, that is not at all the point of what Peter is saying here. That doesn't change the what, because I do believe there is a a call and there's roles that men and women play in marriage. So I do believe the what, I still stand by it, but the point is he's not making an argument just for argument's sake. He's doing it because this is the best way to humbly and respectfully show the gospel to an unbelieving husband. He goes on, we've got to continue on in verse 3, but it says this, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be hidden, be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. People read this text and immediately they, they catch some things. 
as we all do. And one of the things that people always catch is Scripture saying that I'm not allowed to braid my hair? Is Scripture saying I'm not allowed to wear jewelry? Is Scripture saying that I, I can't put on makeup? Is Scripture saying that I can't do anything to, ch- to try to make myself look better? And, and my answer is no, I, I don't think that. Why? Because we can't just ignore Scripture, so w- we got to understand why is he not saying that. Here's why he's not saying that. Because one, these are not absolutes. It's not an absolute, meaning he's not absolutely saying do not braid your hair. He's not absolutely saying you should not wear jewelry. And why do we know that? Because the third one is, talks about clothing. He's not absolutely saying don't put on clothing. Like we wouldn't conclude he's saying that, right? Look at it. It says the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Right? He, he's saying don't put your adorning in those things. But if we were to say that he's saying you can't do this, braid your hair, you can't wear gold jewelry, then you have to conclude he's then saying you can't wear clothes. But he's not. What he's saying is don't let your adorning be there. Don't let your, don't, the motivation behind the braided hair, the motivation behind the jewelry, the motivation behind the clothes you wear should not be for the purpose of adorning in order to attract your husband. So adorning is what we do to attract. Yes? Right? I do, I do not, or let me go back. When I'm dating my wife, I did not necessarily put on nice clothes for my sake. If it was just up to me for comfortability, we would have gone with sweatpants, right? It would have been, if it, get my point, it wasn't about me. It was about me wanting to uh, uh, be, look nice for her and all of these things. And, and so when we're looking in the context of trying to win your husband to Christ, He's saying that this is an internal issue, therefore, you should not place your beauty on the outside, but you should place your beauty on the inside. And it's very, very different. The location isn't the only thing that's different, but the substance is different also. Continue to look with me. It says, verse 4, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty. Imperishable. He's talking about a substance that's eternal. There is a massive market today for people who can afford it to have creams and medicines and surgeries to make them not age as much. Right? Why? Because we're trying to fight off the aging process. We can all recognize there's a market for that. We can all recognize that, that people, if given the opportunity, would go, yeah, I would prefer not to have lost this hair right here. Like, I would say that. I would prefer to have not aged to lose the hair. I would prefer not to do some of these things. So it's nothing wrong to admit that there's some things about the aging process that we don't like. And some of that is, you know, I'm not quite as handsome as I once was, I think, because of whatever reason. You know, or what point is, notice what he's saying is all of us want a beauty, but external beauty will fade. But an internal beauty lasts forever. Isn't that so much better? Don't we want something that is not just external and will fade, but that is internal and is imperishable? To kind of illustrate this in a funny way, um, a pastor I was watching, and my pastor was doing a marriage counseling session, and I was part of my training. I got to sit on them sometimes, and he said this to a couple, and I was like, I don't know that you're allowed to say that. 
um, he was talking about the importance of them getting married, not just for external reasons, not just because they were attracted to one another, but there must be more to that for a marriage to last. There must be founded in Christ and all these other things. And to illustrate his point, he said this. If look, he, said, he said, look at one another. They looked at one another, and then he said, um, would you agree they're getting married because you're physically attracted to one another? Yes, that's part of it. And he said, are, are you only getting married because of your physical attraction to one another? And they said, no, there's other reasons. And he said, good, because it doesn't get any better than this. And I went, what? He can't say that. Like, he just said, like, this is the prettiest that you're going to get. And then it's, it's all downhill from there. I'm just like, this is how you run people out of your church. You can't say that. But get his point. He was making the point is, we often, what think is externally attractive, will fade with time. However, what's internal is imperishable and everlasting. See the vast difference of this? And what he's illustrating, it's practical, but he's illustrating is you want to be the person that is of eternal and perishable substance on the inside because you're trying to attract a husband to that very thing. If you're just trying to attract him to a physical reality, then adorn yourself with physical. But if you're wanting to show him the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of an imperishable reality, which Christ already taught, or excuse me, Peter already talked about imperishable uh, eternity back in chapter 1. So this isn't new idea. He's building on it. He's going, if you're wanting to attract him to that, then you attract him with that imperishable beauty. One last thing before moving on. Is ladies, I just want to encourage you, men too, if necessary, but I, I tend to have more of these conversations as a pastor with ladies, so I may, I don't intend to falsely stereotype if I am, but let me just say this. I often do have conversations with ladies who struggle for whatever reasons, for something about uh, external reasons. I, I struggle with external insecurities, so I'm not saying it's just females. And my, the thing I want to say to you and the thing that gospel wants to say to you is that you are beautiful not because of the outside, but you're beautiful because of the inside. My wife uh, isn't here, so I can talk about this. Don't go tell her I said this. Because um, she gets, I'm not, I'm not talking bad about her. She just gets really embarrassed when I talk about her. Um, and so because she's not here, I wouldn't embarrass her. If she was here, I'd embarrass her, so I wouldn't say it. But she's not, so I won't say it. I, I am absolutely physically attracted to my wife. No doubt about it. Okay. However, the most attractive thing to my wife is, is that she models this for me. And the most attractive thing about my wife is that she models this internal just calmness, this internal strength. It says imperishable beauty of, what's the substance of an imperishable beauty? A gentle and quiet spirit. Now, I love my wife the most that when I have moments of panic, She's calm. And when I have moments where I'm freaking out over something because I do that and I worry or whatever, she's visually, to use an illustration, is like a a lake or a pond on a quiet morning when you wake up, if you're out ever out in the woods and you, there's not, there's there's no waves. There's, it's just, it's just this calm water, right? It's just this peaceful water. This is what's being described here, quiet and calm spirit, gentle and quiet spirit. Didn't say a weak spirit, said a gentle spirit. And I need you to know that what love, there's, 
there's just something really attractive about the reality that my wife loves me second to Christ. And I think this is what he's getting at. If you want to be a, have a husband who does not know Christ and you want to attract him to Christ, then show him the beauty of Christ. Show him these things by having this internal, respectful beauty that goes well beyond anything external. See, this isn't a text that's just simply saying, do or don't braid hair or whatever. He's just simply saying, where you are placing your attractiveness is physical and wasting away, or is it spiritual and eternal? And if you place your attractiveness in the reality of genuine Christ within you and a gentle, quiet spirit, you will attract him to that beauty. Verse 5, for this is how the holy women, understand the the description here, he's talking about holy women. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. How do you have a gentle and quiet spirit? How do you have, at the end of verse 6, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening? How do you have a gentle spirit a uh, uh, woman, because specifically he's talking to women, how do you have a wife, speaking to wives, how do you have a gentle spirit that fears nothing? How do you do that? It says it here, because the holy women hoped in God. When your hope is not in your husband's of physical attractiveness to you, when your hope is in God, that gives you this great comfort that even if you're in a home that of a husband that is not glorified God and does not these things and you're just, you want him to come to Christ and you want him to do all these things and you care for him and you love him and you want what's best for him, which is Christ. How, how do you have in those anxious moments this quiet spirit that fears nothing? Because you hope in God. Because your hope is not in your efforts to attract him. Because if you can talk him into Christ, someone else can talk him out of Christ. But your job is, is played out as you hope in God. He gives you this quiet spirit. He gives you this calm. He gives you this strength to then and lovingly submit to him in order to honor him and point him to Jesus. See the beauty of the why? The submission here is because you have a privilege and the honor to point him to Christ. For this is how the holy women, verse 5, who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. And he gives an example. By submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now let me say this again about the fear that anything is frightening. Um... Does that mean you can never be afraid of anything? I really don't think so. I don't think that a description of being a Christian is never to be afraid. Because I like to go camping, but I promise you, I always carry bug spray. I mean, not bug spray. I do that. That's not a big deal. I carry bear spray. Because everything in me goes, I'm going to pass that tree and a bear's going to jump out at me. I just know it. Right? I have this... I have this fear, right, just because of uncomfortableness. And I'm not saying that as a Christian you shouldn't fear bears. You should definitely fear bears, right? But what it's, it's saying is that even in these moments, that even a wife or mom or whatever, even in these moments when your husband is not loving you the way he's supposed to, even in these moments when your husband does not worship Christ, even in these moments when your children are walking away and making difficult decisions, even in these moments where it's difficult to financially provide for your family and all the difficult things that you may face, that when you face those moments, that you can, with this quiet spirit, not fear those situations because your hope is in God. There's this sovereignty picture here 
that when maybe this unbelieving husband is frantic about something, you have this quiet confidence that everything's going to be okay because your hope is not in the circumstance, your hope is in God. See what he's saying here and how this is attractive to someone? And the same is true, not just for husbands and wives, but when we meet people who are frantic over because whatever. And I'm not making a political comment with this, but with every election, you have people that are happy and have people think that the world's going to end. And I'm not discrediting those emotions, but the point is that when I go through any political situation, and if it doesn't go the way I hoped it would go, then I'm upset about that, but I immediately am able to go, but I still trust in God. And ultimately, I'm grateful that my dependence is not on just any specific political situation, but my hope is in God. See the difference? I'm not making a political statement. I'm just simply communicating that if we put our hope in something worldly, it cannot hold us up. That our emotions and our fear will go with the whim of the situation. But when our hope is in God, it brings this quiet firmness. And this is what Peter is saying. That wise, if you live this way, you'll point to something that an unbelieving husband has never seen before. And he might be one to Christ. Make sense? You see that he is playing out how this is done. Now, we're about to move to verse 7 and talk to husbands for a second. And you're going to notice, if you were paying attention, that I'm going to spend about 80% of my time talking uh, to women and talking to wives. And you're going to go, he only spent just a few minutes talking to husbands and see, he's just calling us out and he's just, you know, whatever. But no, I spent 80% of my time talking to, to wives because the text, 80% of the text was talking to wives. So even in the fact that I'm not spending a lot of times here in a moment talking to husbands, it's not because I don't think it's as important. In fact, I would argue verse 7 is more important than verse 6 verses, and I'll tell you why in a second. But it's more important, but I just won't spend as much time, and I need you to know it's not because I'm ignoring it. It's just because Peter didn't spend as much time, and we want to be faithful just to the layout of the text. But verse 7, likewise, so once again, likewise, referring back to verse 12 to begin with, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So how, husbands, do you keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable? You do that, going back to 3.7, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to them, to, or excuse me, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of grace, of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I want to point out a couple of things before we deal with the specifics. I want you to notice that so far, Peter has addressed three groups of people before verse 7. He has addressed all, all who are in under governmental authority, submit to them. So he's referring to those that are under authority. Next, he re, he's referring to servants, be under the authority of your masters. And third, he's referring to wives, being under the leadership and authority of husbands. So all three that he's referred to are those that are in the position of submitting, if you will, to use the language of the text. So we should immediately recognize that he went from talking to those who he calls to submit to talking to someone who's in a position of authority, which goes against what he's been doing, which should immediately make us go, why did he change? Why is he doing this? And I'll argue the change is because he is emphasizing verse 7. It goes out of his norm. The majority of the time, he's not talking to those in the position of the authority in the illustration. He's talking to those in submission. So the fact that he goes to husbands here, here in this moment 
And, and even in the fact that it's a short verse means he doesn't have a lot to say about it, but it was important enough he couldn't leave it out. So what he's about to say is very important. Second, when we read this, we immediately read, showing honors the woman as the weaker vessel, and we immediately, based off culture, immediately might have a problem with this text. And let me be honest, if I'm reading it based off a cultural lens, I have a problem with this text. Okay, I want to be honest about that. And it, if right off the surface, looking at it from a cultural lens, it looks like this is a degrading, chauvinistic, and sexist text. And I'm telling you, it is the complete opposite, and let me tell you why. In the culture 2,000 years ago, and even some today, we see this in many cultures today, but it, I promise you, definitely 2,000 years ago, as we look and study, what did Roman, uh, Greco-Roman culture look like? What did some of these cultures look like? We recognize that women were considered second-class citizens. Women's didn't, women did not even come close to having the same rights as women, or excuse me, as men. That men had all the rights and women didn't have the rights. Let me give you a very sad illustration to this. And Peter and Paul will both address this. But uh, wives who are married were legally obligated not to commit adultery. They were obligated to be faithful to that covenant marriage. However, men in Roman culture had permission and it was permissible for them to sleep around if the woman was of a lesser class and value. See, men, because they had all the rights and the authority, they could do what they wanted, but women could not. See, so even then, there was not equal rights even within the relationship. There's not equal rights in the voting. There's not equal rights in all these things. And one of the reasons for it was of what is referenced here, which is why Peter brings it up, is because men have the ability and the tendency throughout history to use their size to domineer and oppress women because they are of usually uh, smaller and weaker physical stature that is because they could that men would oppress and abuse women. And Paul is, or excuse me, I keep saying Paul and Peter. It's a problem when two of the important apostles in Scripture have the same similar name. I tend to get them confused. Forgive me, but I'm referring to Peter. If I say Paul, I'm referring to Peter. Peter is addressing that inequality in this passage. Whereas instead of men using your strength over women to oppress Instead of them being a weaker vessel and what he's referencing physically here, instead of using that as, a, as an oppression, as a way of doing what you want with them, as a way of domineering and putting your will on them, instead, would you, going back to 2.12, keep your conduct among unbelievers honorable by living with your wives in an understanding and honorable way. Showing honors the woman as the weaker vessel. And here's, here's the punchline. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Here's the punchline. When in that culture, men had the ability to pretty much do what they wanted physically. And because they could, it created a value that women were less than. And Peter is going... Not ignoring the fact that men do usually have the ability to do what they want. And he's saying instead of using that to domineer and devalue, would you instead honor them in this statement because they are heirs with you to the grace of life? He's saying they are equal with you in the gospel. You honor them because their value is the same as yours. 
Guys, when we think about the gospel and the heirs of the grace of the gospel, it is this, that we as humans were the, uh, uh, the pinnacle of God's creation. We are made in his image, and because of sin, we are separated from him. And Christ, out of his love for us, he died for us so that he could show us his grace to us humans. He didn't die for animals. He didn't die for other aspects of his creation. He died for humans because we are that which is the greatest value in his creation. Why is Peter having to tell men that women are equal in that value? Why? Because culture told them that women were less than. And Peter is here going, no, that because of the gospel, they're equal with. So when you read this and it says, honor them as the weaker vessel, it sounds like they're devaluing. But in fact, in that culture, he's arguing, no, don't treat them like they're less than. They are equal with you because they are just as much created in the image of God as you. You might be stronger, and that's not always the case, but you might be stronger, but that doesn't mean you're better. You might have this calling or this gifting, but that doesn't mean you're better. You might this, you might that, you might whatever, but he's saying you honor them in a way that culture doesn't because they are equal in value with you. Because they too are recipients and heirs to the grace of the gospel. Do you see how Peter is stepping in in this moment and saying, time out. I've been talking to wives, but time out. Husbands, you need to see something. The way you honor and the way you show the gospel to the culture and the way you honor your wife is you recognize that she is as equal with you in value in God's eyes. She is not less than, so stop treating her that way. The culture may treat her that way, but you don't. And to truth be, even though we've come a long ways, even in American culture, we still see this all the time. We still see men using strength to abuse and domineer. We still see these type things. And I'm so grateful that our, our culture has come a long ways, but I need us to see that it is in sinful nature for us to do this. So don't think that our culture doesn't need to hear this. We need to hear this, that God may have created us different in some ways, but we are equal in the creation of his image, and Christ died equally for us. We are equal. There is not better than, there is not less than. We are equal. And Peter here is making an incredible call to the value of women, which was, would have been mind-blowing 2,000 years ago, which is why scholars will say in the first three centuries, 75% of the church was made up of women because they recognized the value that Christians put on women. And so I say that to say this. Don't read this passage and think that Peter's being chauvinistic. He's not. In fact, he is being very encouraging and is calling to the beauty because of the gospel that there is this great honor in this. Does this make sense? If not, hopefully you can ask me questions afterwards and I want to clarify. But these are hard texts and these are difficult texts because they're easily misunderstood texts and they're texts sometimes that are hard for us to swallow. But let me close with making this last statement clear. I've tried to explain the why and the why is that through the gospel, we respond in such a way to win people to Christ. And in this instance, that is applied by wives submitting to husbands and husbands honoring and loving their wives. Now, as I've spent time trying to explain the why, the why does not change the what. That I do still believe, and this passage doesn't deal with it tons, but Ephesians 5 will and other passages will, I do believe that men and women do have different roles within this. Not different values, not different importance, but different roles. So if you heard me say tonight, well, this passage isn't telling me to submit to my husband. This passage isn't telling me because the why is about evangelism. This is just an illustration. Not true. 
The why is evangelism, but the what still stands. And we need to process that and look into that and pray through that together and see that this is in God's design. Why, you may ask, because of the gospel. What you, you're telling me that my role as a husband and my role as a wife is because of the gospel? Please explain. Glad you asked. From the very beginning, God instituted marriage, and we see marriage all throughout. We see it here in this passage. We see it in Ephesians 5, that every time that there's an explanation of roles between husbands and wives, the why is always the gospel. The why is always because it's a picture of Christ. Ephesians 5 makes it clear that husbands are the head of the house in the same way that Christ is head of the church, that he lays down his life and died for her. The call is not a call to go, ha, I'm the boss. No, that's not at all what it's saying. But what it is saying is that you as the husband have been given an important role to represent Christ. You're not better than, but you have this in role to represent Christ. And you as the wife have the role to represent the church, to represent this beautiful relationship of care and sacrifice and mutual respect to give a display to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we work within these commands, it's not because men are this or women are this. It actually has nothing to do with a horizontal reason. It has everything to do with a vertical reason. And the reason is, is God's created us uniquely man and woman in order to display the beauty of Christ and his church. And so I want us to see that when we talk about these things, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. So if you're in here tonight and you do not know Jesus... Would you hear me say that Christ loves you so much he died for you? You've probably heard that before. If you've been around Christianity at all, you may have heard a street preacher yell it. You may have done all these things. But don't miss the reality of the truth that Christ loved you so much that he died for you. Then when you and I were hopeless and broken and needed a saving that he stepped out of eternity, he died on the cross, meaning he, he took on our sin he unjustly died because he was the sacrifice for us because God is a holy and just God and he couldn't ignore our sins so our sin had to be dealt with. So Jesus said, I'll take it all on. And he died on the cross so that where he took on all of our sin, we could take on all of his holiness, his righteousness. So we, he bore our sin so we could bear his righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. He submitted himself to his creation that he created in order to save the creation that he created. It's an incredible truth. God created everything. And he could have, in our rebellion, destroyed it. But instead he said, I'll submit to my creation in order to die, in order to save my creation. That's how much Jesus loves you. And would you hear tonight that through this practical text, that through these things, that it's all a call to Christ. And I would love nothing more to just plead with you. Would you turn to Christ? Would you give your life to him? Would you call out to him as Lord and Savior and say, I, I don't know what to pray, but I just need you, Jesus. I need you. And for the believer in the room, as we seek to apply this text, would we also be drawn to glory because of what Christ has done for us? Would we be drawn to glorify him by trying to live out this text and be obedient to this text? And I know that there are, I can think of right now, women in our church who have unbelieving husbands and the struggle that that is. And I want to encourage you, if that's you in this room, would you continue to just put your hope in God, 
have this calm and quiet spirit and continue to just lovingly speak the gospel but live out the gospel and allow the Holy Spirit to do a work in your husband's life. No promises, no guarantees, but scripture speaks to the best way that you love your husband through that journey. And so I want to encourage you to work that out. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. Father, I recognize that I am not an imperfect, or excuse me, I'm not a perfect interpreter. I'm not a perfect preacher. And so, Father, I, Holy Spirit, specifically you tell us that you will guide us into all truth. So, Holy Spirit, would you take tonight in this study, would you help guide our minds and our hearts to truth? As we continue to press in your scripture and, and wrestle with some of these things that just may have been difficult tonight. We go, I'm not sure I agree with that. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would use that questioning, that good questioning. And Holy Spirit, would you draw us to truth and you draw us to understanding? But ultimately, would you draw us to you? Would you draw us of how to, how to honor you and worship you with our lives? Jesus, thank you that you honored us that you submitted to us so that we could have life thank you for my life thank you for saving me thank you for giving me everything Jesus never let me a day go by that I lose the wonder of what you have done Stay with me as we...